Good morning, family. Let's again pray together, please. Lord, we have sung of glorious things today. We have sung of your majesty and how great you are. We have sung of the reality of the fact that the gates of death and hell have not overcome Jesus and that he has been raised from the dead, which is all of our hope, that he is not only raised again from the dead, but he is coming again to raise us from the dead. And we have sung of the glory and the triumph as Jesus entered Jerusalem. But that triumph was seen on a donkey, the foal of an ass. We have read in your word of the glory that he would obtain, but it was through humility and humiliation and torture and death. And Lord, we have a gospel that associates us with a dying, sacrificing, suffering Savior. That before the crown comes the cross, even for us. And so we pray, teach us through your apostle today as we read this letter to this church to help us understand more deeply the things that empowered him, the things that motivated him, the things that enabled him to do far beyond what most of us can comprehend suffering for the sake of Jesus. So please give us help, we pray. By your spirit, speak to us your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, I just want to give you a quick introduction that we are moving our way through 2 Corinthians. It's our normal process, our normal approach that we take a book of the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, try to understand what in its context it tells us about the gospel, about the kingdom, about Jesus. And we're presently in the course of looking at 2 Corinthians, which is a unique letter in a number of different ways. But one of the reasons that this is a unique letter is that it's from a unique man in the Bible, this man called Paul, the apostle, previously known as Saul. He's an unusual man because he is himself a unique figure in the New Testament. Now, I don't mean unique like Jesus unique, because Jesus is obviously more unique than anybody else in the Bible or in human history. But unique in that we find things out about Paul and what motivates him in his life far beyond any of the other 12 apostles. I mean, we, we know a bit about Peter and James and John. And from there, we can almost not even remember the names of Thaddeus. And okay, we know of Judas. But even Peter, beyond his ministry with Jesus for the three years in Judea, we just don't know a whole lot about. There's some church tradition that fills in some of the the gaps, whether Thomas, the apostle, the doubter, went to India. There's some you know, church history and tradition that tells us about that. But, but there's no one, when it comes down to like, what did he do, what motivated him, and what was his engagement with the church, there's no one even close on the chart. And I would suggest we know even more about him than we knew do Jesus, as far as biographically, about his life and how he was trained and what he did. You know, we have that 12-year gap between Jesus's birth and when he goes to the temple. Then we have that gap between 12 and 30. Then we have three years of ministry. So we, of course, know things about Jesus. But 
Paul is a unique figure in the New Testament, and 2 Corinthians, I believe, is a unique letter from this unique figure. The level of autobiographical detail, that is what Paul writes about himself, is far beyond that of any of the other apostles. And we've got 1 Peter, 2 Peter, and that's it. But Peter doesn't really talk about himself much. We're not told much about his relationship with the churches and what he did. Of course, we get some things out of the book of Acts. But there's nothing where there is a self-narrative, a self-reflection of Paul or an apostle telling us what it is that motivates him, how he views his life. Nothing to the degree, to the level. It's off the chart when it comes to these unique individuals we call apostles. We know of his conversion. We know of his life. He tells us a good bit about who he was trained under, what he did for a living. We're told in the book of Acts about how he hated the name of Jesus. He didn't just hate this offspring of religion of, of the Jews, but he hated the name of Jesus. He wanted to kill and take care of everybody who named the name of Jesus of Nazareth and shut them up either by death or imprisonment. He wanted to stop this. He was the lead terrorist instigator agent against the entire Christian movement. And then he becomes a follower of Jesus. That's very unlike Peter. It's very unlike the story of John, who Jesus comes along and he says, I'm the one. And Andrew says, I think we found the Messiah. And they're like, okay. And they kind of sheepishly go, pun intended. They sheepishly go and kind of figure it out and they stumble here and there. But they're not really resistant to him. But Saul, before his conversion, hates the name of Jesus, hates the Christian church, is taking people, dragging them out of their homes. So after this initial persecution, he becomes the one who is, as a follower of Jesus, persecuted and becomes the lead figure of first century New Testament Christianity to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, he hated the name of Jesus and maybe only second in route rivalry would be Paul's hatred for non-Jews. So what is it that motivates this man who hates the name of Jesus, who rejects the resurrected Messiah, who hates Gentiles, who believes that the pure religion is the religion of the Jews. Take away any false Messiah, any false Jesus. These crazy guys like Peter and James and John and the claiming that there's a resurrection from the dead. What an idiot these guys are. What would take this man from being the one who hates them and hates the Gentiles to be the one who will suffer to the degree that we read about in 2 Corinthians. There's something here that is not just an interesting take on, well, I'm glad that religion does that for you. You ever have somebody say that to you? Oh, you found religion. Oh, well, I'm so glad that works for you. This isn't about what works for Paul. This isn't about how his life became more fulfilled. You know, well, my life was kind of a wreck, and then Jesus came in and put it all the pieces back together. Like, that is not Paul's story. Paul's story was, I was on top. I was on the top of my game. Everybody knew me. I was a celebrity Jew Pharisee. 
I was the one who was being appointed by the top leadership to persecute this and prosecute this movement. And then I met Jesus and my entire life fell apart and I was tortured and I was shipwrecked and I was beaten and I was starving and I was suffering. And then all these churches that I planted, they turned against me and then they went to another gospel. Then they accepted false apostles. Well, Paul, I'm glad this Jesus thing works out for you. We're not even in the same territory of discussion. There's something that has gotten down deep in Paul that changes everything for him including what we read here. So we read that of Paul. We, we hear of his call. He is uniquely the call of the apostle to the Gentiles. There's even a place in the book of Galatians where there's a discussion between Paul and Peter and James and John, and they're talking with the leading apostles in Jerusalem. They're like, you know what? What we're going to do is we're just going to continue to go to the Jews. You go to the Gentiles. And he's like, all right, I'll go. So he's uniquely the person who is going to pierce the darkness and take up the mantle of taking Jesus to people who are outside of the Jewish community completely. He's the one that's uniquely sent in the New Testament record to people who are bowing down to idols and having sacrifices in the temple and who are committing sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. That's what's going on at Corinth before Paul arrives. He comes in and says, hey, uh, the story that you're following and these gods that you're following, they're all false. You know, he, he forgot to take that class on how to win friends and influence people. He comes in, he says, all your gods are false. And the Jews who you all hate and think are stupid and backwater and uneducated and have their one God. I mean, like they're such a poor people. They only have one God while, while everybody else has like a whole plethora of gods this little Jewish community, these people that are scattered, these people that have been persecuted, these people who have been suffering, and for 400 years, God has been silent. By the way, that's the true religion, and Jesus, the Son of God, who is divine come from heaven, is the one who came and taught and laid down his life as a sacrifice and was raised from the dead and is coming again to judge the world. And there's a group of Corinthians go, okay, we're in. It's like, What? How does that even happen? And yet it does. And Paul goes and he goes into these places. Jesus gives Paul a vision at one point. Apparently he's afraid of going into Corinth at one point in the book of Acts. And Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, don't be afraid because I have many people in this city. He hasn't even preached there yet. Jesus already has a people he's going to call out from there. So Paul is a unique witness to what the gospel means for non-Jews, for the Gentiles. And then the degree of personal suffering beyond what we know of all the other apostles. I mean, we, we know about you know, some of the apostles as they suffer in the book of Acts and are persecuted first by Paul himself. We, we have the tradition that Peter is crucified eventually in Rome upside down. We know that James is killed, speared through, but we, we don't have a lot of details about the degree to which these men suffered. But when it comes to Paul, he's got a resume of suffering unlike anybody we see in the New Testament. Again, Jesus is unique in what he does in the atonement, what he does on the cross, but human, as far as mere humans, 
like we know things about Paul that have to make us ask the question, why? And how is this possible? So his degree of personal suffering is beyond what we know about other apostles. And the question is, what, what is it that fuels Paul? Because I don't know about you, but living the Christian life for me, like, you know, I stump my toe and I think that, you know, that the world is too evil. You know, I just boom. Ah, yeah. Ah, I hate the evil in the world, you know. In other words, I'm a wimp. But there's something that is so empowering Paul, and it's not that religion works for him. It's so condescending. There's something that has stabilized the inner person of Paul to do righteousness and suffer for good and tell people out about Jesus that we need to probe into and ask questions about. It's like, how is it possible for somebody to live this kind of Christian life? And thankfully, we get a lot of information about it. And it's not some high in the sky. It's just, well, you know, I just keep thinking about Jesus and I keep praying. Like we're told some very, very tangible things, particularly in the book of Acts. So what perspectives, what theology, what beliefs fueled his love, not only for Jesus, but also for the churches, and particularly in this case, the Corinthian church. Now, Again, if you're visiting with us to catch you up a little bit, the Corinthian church is a troubled child. He has preached the gospel there. He is the spiritual father of this group of people. In the first letter, they're taking sides and they've got their favorite celebrity apostle and they've got their favorite celebrity preacher. And they're somewhat turning against Paul and they're breaking down into factions and denominations based on you know, if you're of Peter or Paul or Apollos and the spiritual ones say, well, we're of Jesus. We're not, we don't follow any human being. So we've got all that trouble. We've got all the trouble throughout First Corinthians of the sexual immorality, the drunkenness during the Lord's Supper, of the, the divorces that are starting to take place because of a hyper spirituality. We just we have this wreck of a church that Paul opens up First Corinthians and just said, I am confident God is going to finish this work in you and that in the day of Christ, you will be seen perfect before him. It's like, wow, that's pretty remarkable. But then between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, things become more of a train wreck as he writes to them another letter in between. As he goes to visit them, as we heard last week, one of the guys is a rebel rouser who turns the people against Paul. And he says, oh, Paul's not all that. Paul's not that impressive. I mean, have you seen him? I mean, he's got scars. He's beaten up. He's poor. He's you know, lumbering about. He doesn't have any place, really a permanent house. He's lost everything. He's impoverished. He's poor. He suffers like he's always got something physically wrong with him. He's just like, can't even hardly see. He's lost most of his eyesight. He's got, have you, I mean, have you seen his back? I mean, surely somebody who is enthroned with the victorious Jesus would live a more victorious life. And some of the people in the church are going, well, you know, that's a good point. Because surely if God came to the world he would do something amazing and spectacular. And surely if you were one of the people of the king, he would raise you up to be a king and queen and successful and prosperous and overcoming and all the things that we hear in Christian literature and many Christian sermons. And they persuade a large group of people. Paul shows up and can't even get a hearing. This guy is out talking him and he's out jibing him and he's out. And the people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul's like, he just... 
He, he tucks tail. He leaves. But he is so distraught. And I challenged this with this last week. Like, what would you do in that case? I mean, for me, it would be like, <laughs> good riddance. I hope God sorts you all out in the end because I'm not going to be doing it. But Paul goes away and he spends some time in Ephesus and he calls Titus. And we're going to hear about this in the text today. He calls Titus to him and he sends Titus like, I need you to take a letter. And it's what Paul himself coins as the severe letter. And it probably had like shame on you. How dare you, you, you treat the one who brought you the gospel like this. This is shameful that I should be run out of town. And it's shameful that after I've taught you about Jesus and his suffering and his sacrifice and his love, that you should use Jesus to make your life better in some kind of monetary fame way instead of living righteously in serving and being humble and instead, you're filled with pride. And there's this man who has taken you and turned you against me. And he, and he gives a severe letter. And we don't have it. But we have him later in chapter 7 describing the letter himself. And he calls it a severe letter that caused them to grieve. And so Titus takes that letter, shows up. I mean, how would you like to be Titus? Like, hey, y'all, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> I'm here. I got a letter from Paul. Paul, <laughs> remember when he left last time, he's like, well, here, I'm going to read it to you. And the remarkable thing is he, re re he reads this letter that causes grief and sorrow and humbles them. And it actually works. And they repent. And then they turn to this guy who, you know, has been pulling the strings for a while. And they turn to him. They're like, Hey, you. And then he's like, oh, well, uh, uh, y'all you, with me or what? And then they put him under discipline. And they're severe with him and they're hard on him, which we read last week or two weeks ago. Then Paul says, OK, let up on him. Satan can use this to crush this man. He's got a soul. He's made in the image of God. He is a believer. Lift up your discipline of him, lest he be swallowed up with sorrow. He's very sensitive to him. So that's what happens in this letter. But we, we find this theology that drives him, and we've got some questions to ask from the text itself. And again, if you're visiting with us, what we do is we try to go into this text. Why does Paul or Peter or John or whoever write this text? What does it mean for them? And then what does it mean for us? So what we read then, verses 12 and 13, is a longing for his brother. He's writing this letter. He sent the severe letter. He's now writing this letter after getting a report that they had repented and put this man under discipline. This is really the, the, the fourth letter that we know of, two of which we have in our Bibles. We read in verses 12 and 13, a longing for his brother. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Okay, for all you nerds, here's a map. These are some of the key places you need to know just to understand what's going. You see over on your left-hand side in Upper Achaia is that place called, called Corinth. It's right there uh, where the two uh, land masses come together of Greece and Achaia. And, and, and it comes together and there's that little patch of, of 
land that they would take ships over rather than sailing all the way down around Sparta. That, that was a, a really treacherous way to sail. So they would bring through Corinth. And we remember that Corinth was a, this market city. It was a place where there were uh, public speakers and rhetoricians and, and philosophers. It was like Rome on steroids, if you will. And so that's Corinth. That's who this letter is being written to. Now, if you go straight across the Aegean Sea, you see Ephesus. Paul spends uh, at least a number of years there at Ephesus, and he has traveled to Corinth. He's already had the previous visit. Now he's back in Ephesus, and he has Titus there with him. This is how we put the chronology together. So Corinth is in an upheaval. This man is leading them astray. They're becoming critical of the apostle. In Ephesus, he is just tortured over the response of the Corinthians, of how he left them, and of the damage that this man is doing to the church. So in Ephesus, he calls Titus to himself, and he says, look, I've got other work I need to do, and it's too hostile there for me. I need you to go as my ambassador. I need you to take a letter, and I need you to see how they're going to take it, to which I'm sure Titus went, uh, okay, <laughs> all right, I'll, I'll, I'll go for you. No, I'm sure he did. He said, okay, Paul, of course, this is your, you know, this is Christ's church. This is a church you planted. So then Titus makes his way over to Corinth and there's a time of silence. But the arrangement is Paul's going to make his way right before the winter up to Troas. You see it there again on your right hand side of the screen, the upper northwest of Asia. He goes there. It's a port city. They can sail out of that city and move over to Macedonia or go down to Corinth. He goes to Troas, and it's been arranged to meet Titus there. And that's what we read here in verse 12. When I came to Troas after Ephesus and sending Titus and writing this letter, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, so he says the reason I'm going to Troas is because the gospel hasn't been preached there yet. And we read a little bit about that in the book of Acts. I'm going there, and I'm going there to announce the good news of the Messiah is probably a more literal and better way uh, to to translate that. I, I came to announce the good news of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When I came there, he speaks of his circumstances. He says, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, and that's very specific New Testament terminology for God providentially and clearly opening a door of ministry. This isn't just happenstance. This isn't just, you know, well, it seemed like this was a good place to go. There was a door that unless the Lord opened it, Paul could not get through. And the door, the Lord opened the door for him to be able to go through for the purpose of ministry. So Paul, we read in the book of Acts, is very sensitive to the spirit. The spirit speaks to him. The spirit gives him direction. The spirit gives him visions of the man in Macedonia says, come over and help us. I mean, he's got this really deep connectivity with God himself. And so when he says that the Lord opened up a door, I don't think he meant I happened to get the passport at the right time and, it, and things fell into place. I mean, he's intentional saying God took me here. OK, and that's important. Because then he goes on to say, even though a door was open for me in the Lord and let me let me pass the map here. So anyway, there's Troas. We're, and remember where Macedonia is. We're coming to that in a minute. So what we find is when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, the good news of Messiah, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, like God clearly did this thing that I could not have done otherwise, my spirit was not at rest. So Paul comes to Troas, 
He comes, God has opened the door, he's preaching the gospel, and disciples are being made, but he is at unrest. Like, his spirit is discontented. So he's not just like, hey, there are new people in the kingdom. I mean, again, what a temptation it is when you've got a church you're dealing with, and they're all in rebellion, and they're calling you bad names, and they're accusing of things you're not... Respond, and then you go over here and you start preaching the gospel, and these people are like, "Yay, we love you! Give us the gospel! You know, we're your church." And I mean, what would you be tempted to do? Be like, "Well, they didn't want it. I'm going to give it to them." But while he is there at Troas giving the gospel, and people are being converted, he is at unrest, and it's the unrest of a father. It's the unrest of a man who loves the Corinthian church, even in their prodigal rebellion. Even when they're calling him names, even when they're saying he is weak, even when they're saying you are of no stature, you can't talk right, you don't have a good education, philosophically speaking, like they're there. And yet he's there and he thinks of his prodigal child and that and those of us with children or who know children, how often it is that it's the prodigal or it's the one who's not acting right, who who often draws out more of our love and our affection, not because we don't love the the behaviorally uh, appropriate one, but when things are going well with this one, it's the heart of God and the heart of Jesus and the heart of the apostle who says, I long for the sheep that are going astray. And I long for the prodigal and I want to do good to the prodigal. I don't want to leave them behind and forget them, but it's the heart of God to go for the prodigal. And so Jesus's uh, parable about leaving the ninety nine to go after the one. And his heart is at unrest and God is blessing him, but he pillows his head at night or puts it on the rock floor or whatever, wherever he's sleeping at Troas, or maybe he has a nice bed by some people who are hosting him. But he lays down at bed at night after a successful day of preaching the gospel and teaching people who are enthusiastic about this new idea. And he thinks of the Corinthians and their faces come to his mind and what it was like walking out the door and hearing the gasps as he walked out the door from those churches. And so he's not at rest even when God has a ministry door open to him. So you feeling some of the tension here? And this is why. My spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Now, why is that important? Well, I've already said Titus goes to Corinth to take this letter to try to sort things out. And he's meeting Titus to find out what is the Corinthian church's response. And day after day after day goes and he doesn't see Titus. So it's not just Titus himself. It's Titus and the news he's going to bring about the Corinthian church. In one sense, the disobedient churches in Corinth made him at unrest. It spoiled even the joy of the work that he was presently working in. He was in angst over them. And I didn't find my brother Titus there. And that that indicates to us that they had prearranged to have met Titus there. And now the season's passing and Titus is not going to be able to make it across the Aegean Sea because you don't sail during certain times in the Mediterranean, in the Aegean Sea, because it is deadly and no ship captain is going to take the risk to get you across. So then you have to go up around 
that whole that whole area, and it's a treacherous thing. So you got to get there now uh, at this season, or you're not going to get there. So here's what he does. He does what in some perhaps pastoral missionary books tells us we shouldn't do. He leaves the church at Troas behind. He says, so I took leave of them. I left them behind. He says to them, I've got to go take care of this church and I need to go see Titus. Now, if you know anything about human nature, you know that that could cause a little bit of jealousy. That could cause a little bit of stirring up. Well, wait a minute. We're, you know, it's like, it's, it's like if the elder brothers said, wait, we're the ones doing the right thing here. Why don't you give us the attention? We're the ones who, who are receiving the word. We're the ones who are joyful about this. We're, and you're going to go take care of the bad kids? And so there's the elder brother syndrome, potentially. We don't read that that happens at Troas, but Paul takes the risk at leaving that church behind, and he probably left some other workers to help out as well. Do you know how people are? Well, it's not Paul. It's just Timothy. I mean, who's Timothy anyway? <laughs> well, there we go. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So he's going to get around there because he thinks he's going to find Titus there. Now, we could limit this to Paul's suffering and his difficulties as merely something that's like psychological, like, oh, I'm just worried about this church. I want us to look at two passages that on top of this, what Paul is dealing with, which is just amazing to me, that he cares about anybody other than himself at this point is remarkable. If you'll look, please, back in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, He's going to describe his ministry in Asia, which would have included Ephesus, which he, that ministry which he's engaged in. And, and listen to what he says about this time period. And I, I don't think this is hyperbole. He says, verse 8, We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Again, that includes Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And what, what does that mean? Well, as I've mentioned a few, a few times, this is not just general human suffering we're talking about. We're talking about things that he gives us a... Um, a laundry list, if you will, of examples in chapter 11. They include imprisonments and imprisonments in a system where they didn't give you food and an orange jumpsuit and keep you away from the other, you know, violent criminals or things like that. We're talking about the equivalent of a damp cave where you had to have people bring food to you in chains, sometimes in shackles where your extremities would be pulled apart just to cause pain and discomfort. So during this period, he included Paul being in prison. He said, countless beatings. How many times have you been beaten? I don't even remember. One, two, 10, 12, 15. I don't remember. How many times have people physically beaten you? I don't, I don't remember. They're countless. Being often near death, like Paul Many, many times sees the veil being pulled over his eyes, nearly dead, almost dead. It comes out, it's like, oh, I survived again. <laughs> Which is why when you read Philippians, he says, I don't know what's better, to be apart from the body and to be with Christ or to stay here with you. I mean, he has suffered and come to death so many times. 
This is the suffering he is suffering in Asia. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. If you're into historical fiction kind of stuff, watch the Horatio Hornblower series of what they do, would do to a lower classman if they did something that was mutinous or anything. And you want to see what a beating looks like. That's what the beating looks like. And it is unbelievably torturous. But he went through that not just once, but he says three times. I was stoned. Like they, they, they took him out, threw him into a ditch, threw big rocks, baseball-sized rocks at him to kill him, which causes broken ribs, contusions, all the rest. I was shipwrecked a night and a day and adrift at sea and frequent journeys and rivers and danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many. So that, that's Paul's like lot. So he's suffering that in Asia to the point he's like, we had just given up like we're dead. We're dead. And what's Paul most worried about? The church at Corinth. Really? He says, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's like the only hope we had was in the end, God was going to raise us from the dead. Like that's it. No hope of recovery, no hope of survival, no hope that any good is going to come out of this. No hope of the ultimate healing of my body in this world. My only hope is if God raises us from the dead, that's it. We tend to hope in our security, in our bank accounts, in our insurance policies, in our children, in our parents, in our property, in our rights as Americans. We have all of these hopes. And Paul said we, we, we were completely devoid of any hope whatsoever other than, you know what, I hope, I hope God raises us from the dead. If not, we, we ain't got nothing. And yet he lays in his bed at Troas concerned about the Corinthian church. And then over in chapter 7, verse, so that's what happens in Asia. Then he goes to Macedonia. After he goes to Troas, he goes to look for Titus. And look, please, over in chapter 7, beginning with verse 5. Even when we had come into, when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Yes, Paul, the apostle and his companions were scared. Fear within. So, so don't think of these like ephemeral, ghost-like apostles with halos that, you know, they get hit in the face with a stone. They're just like, oh, you know, look at me. It's like, man, if I get hit with that stone, it's going to hurt. It's going to leave a mark. And he was scared. They were scared. There were fears within. And then notice this. What was it that would cheer Paul? What was the thing that in the midst of it? I mean, what could give you or me comfort in the midst of that degree of suffering, that degree of misery? What is it that could make us happy and cheerful? Well, Paul tells us what made him cheerful and comforted him. Verse 6, chapter 7, verse 6. But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming, it's like, well, you just like Titus. He's a buddy of yours and you felt better. And he said, no, not just that. Also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, 
your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. So what happens is Titus goes to church. He reads this letter. By the Spirit, they are broken. They are sorrowful. They grieve. They weep. They grab hold of Titus and they say, please, please tell Paul we're so sorry. Tell him we are sorry for what we've said. We're sorry for what we've done. We have sinned against him. We've sinned against the Lord. We've sinned against the one man who has loved us. And then they look at the guy and they, they, the jig is up with this guy. He's like, uh-oh, uh-oh. Like, oh, we'll take care of it. Titus, you tell him, we'll take care of this guy. And then when they meet in Macedonia with all of the sufferings and all of the fears and there, Paul, here's the announcement. Titus just arrived. Let him in. And Titus comes in and says, Paul, your church loves you. And they, they are repenting and they are sorry and with tears and they are broken and they can't wait to see you. Paul says, the God who comforts the downcast comforted me by the coming of Titus, not only with the comfort that he brings, but comforted with the comfort that you comforted him. And it makes the suffering and the physical pain and the misery of persecution. Paul says, how did I get comfort? Because I saw the work of Christ in the church. So then Paul, that's kind of the end of the story to which we go, how does this even work, y'all? Like, what is Paul thinking? What, why is it? I mean, this is more than a human institution. This is more than just, hey, I met my numbers for this week's, you know, this year's denominational additions. And, you know, we, we've, well, our numbers are up. You know, it, it's way beyond anything like that. What is it that's fueling Paul to be able to celebrate in the midst of such suffering and misery? Well, he begins to tell us in verses 14, 16, and the commentators kind of all struggle with this, and I struggle with it. It's like in the middle of this story, he gives us this theological truth bomb that like blows everything to pieces, or that's, that's actually destructive. Um, this truth bomb Let's do it that way. Balm instead of bomb that heals everything and in one sense brings everything together and, and empowers him. He says, despite this, I couldn't find Titus. I went to find him in Macedonia. He tells us later what happened at, that, the, at those meetings. But he says this. He gives a eulogy. Thanks be to God. Now think of Paul suffering in Asia. Think of Paul going to Troas, not finding Titus, his anxiety over the churches. And then think of him going to Macedonia and being afraid and fears within and troubles without and all of this stuff and fearing and the sentence of death. And we've got no hope of the resurrection and all of this. Paul, would you mind zooming out for us and, and, and giving us like a, a director's cut version of what is going on here? What, what is this that you're doing? What is this? That's happening with all of this suffering, misery, troubles in the churches, repentance of the church. What is going on here? He says, well, here, here's, you know, what's happening here is a parade. And that's the metaphor he spends. He actually takes a pagan celebratory 
event, which would have been a, an ancient leader who goes and conquers a certain group of people, comes in, either kills them all or takes them as slaves. And then when he marches back into his city, he's got those slaves and people he's taken in, into his custody to come and, and to take them out of their land and to bring them in. Or sometimes it was coming into the city and that you had just overcome. So you take the soldiers, you bind them. So the image is, is broad. It's not quite precise, but it has to do with a leader who has both captives capt uh, taken captive and you have soldiers who are also marching behind the general in victory, whether to his home city or into this conquered city. We're not sure exactly what metaphor he's using here. But he uses this pagan uh, festival uh, or this pe pagan celebration, which the ancient leaders would have done. And at this time period, they would have done that and they would have burned incense to Jupiter, not the planet, the god, uh, to Jupiter. They would, they would be burning this incense and the incense, as the incense wafted back, as the priests would be carrying the censers and the slaves would be there, they would hear, they would smell that smell. And it was death to death. It was, that's the smell of us being conquered and us being overthrown. And my whole life is lost if I even survive the day. I may very well be beheaded by the day is over. But that smell going up to Jupiter that those prisoners are smelling is death and every step they take as they are yoked under the chains and they walk and they smell that. And meanwhile, the general and the soldiers are smelling that and they smell victory. They smell victory. They smell that and they're like, we won. And we're following the king. We're following the ruler. We are the ones who are the victorious ones. Who is the victorious one? And it's this image that Paul lifts out of pagan culture and sacrifice to Jupiter. And he says, you want to know what's going on in my life and in the Christian mission and what's going on at Corinth? You want to know what's happening? Envision that picture of the general coming on his chariot with his soldiers and with the, the overcome servants behind him of another city. That's what's going when you see me suffer. That's what happens when you see me going through what I go through. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal pr procession. That's a technical term meaning this procession of, of, of triumph. So when Paul is in prison, when Paul is being beaten, when Paul is suffering hunger, when he is shipwrecked, when he is beaten without number, you know what's happening? There's an aroma being given off to God. And for some looking at that and smelling the life of Paul and his suffering, some people smell it and go, that just smells putrid and horrible. And what a thing to do. What kind of God do you have? And that's what these super apostles and probably this man were saying about Paul. They were saying, look at him. Look at the degree of his suffering. You're telling me that's the victorious Jesus raised from the dead? And that's what happens if you become a faithful follower of him. Huh. Thanks, but no thanks. That's not going to get on the top 10 seller book list at, at, at Corinth. Those, that, those aren't going to be the speakers that you, you, you hire into your new conference to tell you how to succeed in doing the church. No, it is Paul being led by Christ in triumphal procession. 
And through us, Paul says, the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, what does this mean? At least it means in part that the gospel is such good news. Not only will we live for it, but we will suffer for it. Paul says the, it's the fragrance that his suffering, when you smell it with a, a nose that has been awakened to who Jesus is, you smell his life and it's a sweet smelling aroma. It's a sweet smelling fragrance. It smells good. You look at Paul and you go, I smell Jesus. Spreading the fragrance of him anywhere for we are in our suffering. So this, this isn't just about the gospel, you know, and sometimes this text is used to, well, when the gospel is preached, some people think it stinks and some people think it smells amazing. And there's an application, but that's not exactly what he's saying here. He's like, our life of sacrificing for the greater glory of Christ and doing good to the church and taking up the servant's role and being willing to suffer and serve the church for his name's sake, when that happens, even when I'm crushed by it, he says, it is an that we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. And these are the super apostles, the false apostles, this man who was leading them astray. And for a time, the Corinthian church, they just thought somebody's suffering like this. We just don't want any part of that kind of a religion. So it's from death to death, he says, but to other, it is a fragrance from life to life. How great must Jesus be in his love to compel someone to endure and suffer such things when he had the choice not to suffer them? It's our willingness to suffer boldly, courageously, for the sake of doing things that we would not do otherwise because we are followers of Christ where this is seen. But Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? So he's not like, hey, look at me. Look at us. Look at how much I suffer. He looks at his own life. He's like, I ain't got nothing. In and of myself, who is sufficient? Not me, not Titus, not Timothy. This isn't a Paul thing. This isn't a personality thing. This isn't an extroversion thing. This isn't just, you know, good old religion thing. Who is sufficient for these things? We're going to have to wait down to verses five and six to see his own answer to that question. But then he closes with this. We are not, and here's what makes the difference. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word. We're not peddlers of God's word. There are people in his own day and in our day who love the idea of the Bible and love the idea of truth and love the idea of garnering a group of followers who will follow them and follow their teaching. There are people who love that, but what marks them is I'm using this and manipulating it and twisting it and torturing it and taking it out of context to accomplish my goals. I want to build a church. So I'm going to use the Bible to build a church. I'm going to build a kingdom or a school, or I'm going to do this, or I want to make a living. And I'm going to use the Bible and like a street, a cheap street peddler to take certain parts of it out and say, here, will you buy this? Will you buy this? And there are whole marketing schemes that are 
are, are geared toward figuring out what people want and giving it to them from the Bible. And what is the mark of success is numbers and it's numerics and, it, and it's quantifiable next steps that build a, a church that's growing at a certain rate, at a certain speed, in a certain geographical. And there's so, a whole ministries based on that. Paul says that is not what we're doing. It is not what is about what it's not about what works. It's about what is faithful. It's not about success. It's about Jesus. We're not like so many and they had them in their day. Sometimes we say, oh, there are so many people that peddle God's word. You know, we just live in a unique time. No, we don't. They, they, they existed then. There were people who were co-opting the Bible and the, the Jewish religion and Jesus raised from the dead to propagate and peddle God's word there. He says, that's not how we, what we're doing. How do you know that? Because as you can clearly see, it's not to my advantage. <laughs> that's, there's proof in the pudding there. But rather, we are men of sincerity. We are men of sincerity. We are as commissioned by God in the sight of God, in the presence of God, we speak in Christ. And it's a suffering Savior and it's a suffering church who suffers for the sake of the fellowship of his suffering and for the glory of God. Not just looking for suffering, but embracing it where the gospel brings us. Quickly, application. Paul I think we see in this passage and throughout the book is a paradigm for perseverance and faith in the face of the most extreme circumstances. As I keep revisiting Paul and, and his suffering and, and his dealing with the church, I just go, man, how many, how many opportunities does he have psychologically be like, I'm just done. At what point is another church going to rebel against you or another Demas forsake you and close companion or pastors fall or fail or churches go apostate or what at what point in Paul's life is he just going to go you know what I'm just going to go somewhere and write books for the rest of my life <laughs> I've done my my 30 years of, of ministry suffering you know what I'm just going to go and I'm not knocking people who retire to write books or anything like that but for Paul that was just not going to be an option in the face of, of the most extreme circumstances, we live in a day, I think it is evident, and I don't want to say it's unique, where people find many reasons to abandon the faith. We're hearing it, it's called deconstruction now or deconversion. We're hearing all kinds of these stories of even Christian pastors and ministers and leaders and Christians, perhaps friends of yours who go, well, you know, I believed all that Jesus stuff until, and it's usually something bad, isn't it? Until I found out that somebody was stealing money or until I found out about this adulterous relationship or until I started suffering a chronic illness or until we lost all of our stuff in the in the in the financial crisis or it's Jesus is all good until something bad happens. And then suddenly everybody has like an intellectual crisis. And we have people who abandon the faith. And I'm not talking about wrestling with, struggling with, wrestling with God. I think there's plenty of space for that. But somebody who says, you know what, if it means I suffer, then I'm out. It's like somebody sold you a bad bill of goods in the beginning. Because there is no promise, follow Jesus, avoid suffering of whatever sort. As a matter of fact, there's a 
pretty big promise through many sufferings, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. So then somebody comes to a point of personal suffering. They're like, I'm out with Jesus. You know, I don't think this is true. It's like you're believing the wrong thing from the beginning. Or viewing suffering in the world. Somebody has a relatively fishbowl life and then suddenly they go off to college or they start reading the news and they look and they're like, did you know that there are things like tsunamis? Do, do, do you know there's infant mortality? Do you know there are wars going on? And I'm not demeaning or diminishing the, the, the trauma of any of that, but it's like it's a surprise. Like, well, I was going to follow Jesus, but now that I see that there's suffering and injustice in the world, I'm not, I, you realize that's what the gospel is for, is the suffering and injustice in the world. And to be shocked by suffering and injustice to the point to say, I'm leaving the church or I'm leaving the gospel or Jesus isn't true, turns the whole story on its head. Personal suffering, suffering the world, betrayal. Well, somebody was, used to be my friend. They're not my friend anymore. And they said bad things about me. Therefore, I'm going to leave Jesus. It's like, what? Well, I, I, I had a pastor that I, I really thought was a godly man and he fell. Yes, the Bible is full of them. Jesus had one amidst his 12. His name was Judas. And Jesus gave him the responsibility to keep the money back, knowing he was a thief. <laughs> I don't know. Ask Jesus why. I don't know. But abandonment of friends, corruption, abuse. Well, now there's abuse in the world or there's abuse in the church. It's, yeah, yeah, there's abuse in the church because you know what's in the church is people. And the church is not unique. It's unique in its antidote of what it ought to be using to address abuse. But as long as there are people, there's going to be abuse in every human institution. And it's not a reason to abandon the faith. Well, I, I, I believed in Christianity till I took a, a religion 101 class and realized that there were other religions who said we should love people. Why is that such a shock? Why, why, is, it, why is it so easily... Off kilter was like, well, and, and you know, I, I believed in Jesus till I started. I mean, you just hear these testimonies all the time. And, and my point is, like, there is none of these that Paul didn't face. His own personal suffering, watching suffering in the world, being betrayed by friends, being betrayed by churches, the corruption, seeing the abuse within the systems, having to himself correct the abuse within the system, the intellectual challenges he would find at Athens and Corinth and other places. And I just see a man who is so deeply committed to the person of Jesus Christ because he had encountered him personally. That Paul's not like, well, every time a wave of, of, of difficulty comes along, it's like, well, I'm going to jump ship. It's like, you got the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? And so my assertion is that much apostasy de-Christianization, deconstruction, deconversion, what you see in our day, may very well just be a result of false perceptions of what Christianity claims or even offers. You know what Christianity offers you? Forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and eternal life and resurrection from the dead. Statistically, becoming a Christian doesn't mean that the, the, the divorce rates are going to drop or you're going to be any less sick or have any less suffering. As a matter of fact, following Jesus may very well incur greater suffering. So let's not go to a, a false bill of sale and say, here are all the promises. It's like none of these are shocking or surprising or they shouldn't be. 
Christ doesn't offer escape in this world. He offers escape from the grave. And a lot of these deconversions is God, I think, unraveling people's false hopes to hopefully bring someone to the point where they could say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, it was to make us not rely on ourselves or on politics or on the government or on taxes or on bank accounts or insurance policy. It's not to make us rely on any of those things, but God who raises the dead. That's it. That's the only thing we got, folks. There's nothing else that is certain. There is nothing else that you have in your bank, in your background, or in your future that is as certain as resurrection from the dead. Where do we go when we face the difficulties? What we need is a resurrection-inspired view of the world that doesn't stain, change the statistics, but gives us hope for the life to come. I've got more but I'm over time. Thank you for your patience. Uh, let's please pray. And so please, Lord, we ask that these fundamental realities of resurrection and victory in Jesus, what that means, give us help, Lord, to walk uprightly before you, to, Lord, fight through disappointment and sin and suffering and betrayal in a way that is a sweet, sweat-smelling sweat aroma life to life for those who believe and death to that death for those who are perishing. Lord, I pray that the gospel this morning would be that aroma of life to life for those who sit here, that you would work a miracle of spiritual smell, that where Jesus has been abhorrent to them in the past, that they will walk away this morning with a sweet smelling aroma of the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name.